I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to the old podcast, episode 26. Oh yeah, it is 26. Do you have any fond memories with regards to the number 26? Nope. How about you? None at all. None any sports players? No sportsing. Or what do you call it? Athletes, sorry. I mean, sports players works too. Um, so before we get into today's episode, Sam, there is something I wanted to bring up. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't want to bring this up on the show, um, and I'll explain why, but did you see that list of the top most anti-Semitic universities that's going around the internet? I did, David. The tireless reporting of the Canadian Jewish News. Oh, they had their own article about it? They did. Who wrote Staff them? reporter Ron Selig. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so the reason I didn't want to, I, I should say, the reason I didn't want to bring this up at first is because it just seemed like par for the course, right-wing Jewish internet. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's this thing where people who aren't used to reading right-wing Jewish websites all the time, like we've gotten very used to, will see mm-hmm. these articles and will be like, this is horrible, we have to address this. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the websites, it's always like this all the time. Yes. So for me, I was like, okay, this is par for the course. I see this stuff all the time. Of course, this is what they're saying. And basically for newcomers to the show, this is a good old-fashioned conflation of anti-Semitism and Palestinian solidarity. So what uh, made this unique for you? Oh, so, okay. So the reason that I want to talk about it now is I assumed it would just die out like all these things do in about a week. Mm-hmm. But the National Post, one of the national newspapers in Canada... And for American listeners, I guess it would be the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they ran an article about this listicle... Oh, well. Essentially, the premise of the article was, we read this thing on the internet, and so we brought it to the Jewish people we know. Huh. And it was kind of interesting because they brought it to the right-wing institutional Jewish community. They went to the Center for Israel Jewish Affairs. They went to Hillel on campuses, and they're all like, eh, I don't know about this. Also, I think we should backtrack a little bit again. Um, this list was put out by a publication that I kind of always think is a fake organization. It's called Al Jamanir. Oh, it's Yiddish. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It means for everyone or something like that. Oh, wow. It okay. To, it used to be like almost only in Yiddish. Uh, like really? It started back in the 70s. It was sort of like Hasidic New York oriented. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I mean, I've only seen the website and it always just feels like it's something that a bunch of people put out that no one reads. Well, <laughs> well okay. Like Ellie Wiesel was on the board for a while. There's two versions of this. There's the old version that was more New York Hasidic focused and yeah. mostly in Yiddish. But then in the early 2000s, the original editor died and a new person took over and they took it in a new direction. They started focusing on the English uh, okay. supplement. So this, and they, so this is what I'm referring to. Yeah. And so the new yeah. version is very much right wing Zionist. Okay. Anyway, so I, I want to bring this up because it's, yeah, it's in the Canadian Jewish News. It's in the National Post. It's getting way more play than I expected it to. For some reason this year, it just really got picked up. Yeah, well, I mean, there's just a fundamental tension that exists in these articles about how these startling statistics were brought to institutional Jewish voices. They're trying to balance, on the one hand, increasing fear and anxiety around BDS and Palestinian solidarity work and framing it as anti-Semitism. And on the other hand, saying, well, don't worry about it. It's not that bad. And that's kind of the angle of the Canadian Jewish News article, which was titled Canadian Jewish Groups Downplay, quote, Worst Campuses Ranking. So I suppose it has been an inadvertent and probably somewhat scattered version of our old segment, BDS Watch Watch. Hopefully we will uh, keep them coming in the future as well. Yeah. So what else is new, David? I'm trying to finish up my uh, stint on the podcast I get paid to do every month. What's it called? It's called the Dominion Podcast. It's a uh, monthly current affairs show, the collaboration between CKUT, the radio station we're recording in right now, and the National Media Co-op Network in Canada. 
and folks can listen on all their favorite podcast apps. Uh, indeed. You can hear what it sounds like when one person tries to create an entire podcast all, <laughs> all, all on their own. <laughs> so I think we've run out of banter for the day. Do you um, want to share who is on the podcast this week? Yeah. So today on the show, we're speaking with Rebecca Volkomerson, who's the executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace. You've probably noticed on the show that the vast majority of people we interview, we don't usually know this in advance, will tell us that they are a member of Jewish Voice for Peace and that they're very excited about that fact. And it's very likely that half of the people listening right now are in some way related to JVP. And we somehow managed to go this far on the show without talking with Rebecca and talking about the organization, about its history, how it's changed over time and, and where she thinks the organization is headed. And what we were excited to delve into a little more in this interview was just the dynamic that is taking place on the Jewish left in North America, the kind of emergence of different groups representing different positions on the Jewish left that might not have existed 10 or 15 years ago, and what role JVP plays within that ecosystem. So this is your episode of Trafe for the 27th of Tevet 5777 So, my name is Rebecca Volkomerson. I'm the executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace. I've been in that position for the last seven or so years, and I've been a member of Jewish Voice for Peace since about 2002. I am now headed home to meet my two daughters, who are 13 and 11. When I'm not doing JVP stuff, I'm with my kids, I'm with my family, I'm with my dog, I'm doing yoga. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. There's a lot we want to talk about. We were saying before, most of the people we talk to end up, by the end of the interview, saying that they are Jewish Voice for Peace members. Oh, I love that. And so before we get into a lot of stuff that's been happening lately and a lot of changes that Jewish Voice for Peace has gone mm -hmm. through, I wanted to start with the start of JBP. Uh, how, how did it start? Like, what is the origin story of Jewish Voice for Peace? So JVP has gone through several different phases. Basically, it started, this is a bit before my time, in the Bay Area in the late 90s. And from my understanding, when it started, it was almost like a cultural exchange organization. And then it became much more political when the Second Intifada started. But, you know, it was really a bunch of people in the Bay Area who are meeting in people's living rooms and always had aspirations for national impact, even even just based in the Bay Area. And I actually was in the Bay Area back then. I was living in San Francisco. And when the Second Intifada started, I joined JVP as a member. And JVP continued to do local work for, for several years and got a lot of press. And ultimately, we went through a process of going national around 2005, 2006. And that ended up being like actually a difficult process because, you know, these small organizations have their own cultures and their own personalities. And we didn't really do the work that we had needed to do to become one organization. And so we went national and then the organization almost fell apart. Ultimately, the sort of, I would say the JVP 2.0 sort of started right around 2008, 2009, which was around the same time that I became the executive director. And I was the first executive director, national executive director in New York, not just in the Bay Area. And that was when we started organizing chapters based on the JVP model. So based on 
our own vision for what we wanted to do. And so there's been a very, very strong growth trajectory since then. It's been pretty constant, the level of growth and people coming into JVP. So you you outline this distinction between JVP 1.0 and 2.0. And I'm wondering within 2.0, what are some of the big changes or what have you seen between this 2008 and 2016? Yeah, so I think a lot of things have changed both structurally and politically. I think one of the things I'm proudest of is that even as we've grown in size, we've also continuously moved to the left, um, which I think is like a pretty rare feat for an organization as it grows. You know, usually I think people end up compromising and maybe becoming more cautious as they get bigger. And I think one of the biggest political moments for us was endorsing the BDS call. And that was after like a year and a half long process with our membership. Mm. But I think, you know, politically, we've certainly evolved. And I think especially in the last year, you know, I've thought about the ways that we think of ourselves as a part of a broader left. And I think that's a reflection of the broadening of the Palestine movement in the United States. You know, I think our endorsement of the Movement for Black Lives platform at a moment when they were getting seriously attacked by most of the Jewish community and some of the ways that we've been in solidarity with Standing Rock and border activism and that sort of thing. So sort of an evolving picture of ourselves as being situated not just in the Palestine solidarity movement and not just in the Jewish communal world, but also in this sort of broader left formation has been very important. And we actually, we have a, a book on anti-Semitism coming out um, mm-hmm. in March with Haymarket Books, which we're really, really excited about. It's an anthology and it looks at anti-Semitism, not just from a Jewish perspective, but from a Palestinian perspective and perspective of various peoples of color, Zrahi Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, Jews of color, you know, so it sort of does a, a much more holistic, I think, picture of the way anti-Semitism has an impact on organizing in people's lives than a lot of these books do. But that's, there's a continuity there because we actually did a self-published book about anti-Semitism 10 years ago, which, mm-hmm. again, when JVP was just a Bay Area local organization. And I think it's very, very important for us as a left organization that I, to say, like, yes, anti-Semitism has more proximity to power than I remember at any time in my lifetime. And there's a calibration of the level of risk or danger that we're in right now as compared to Muslim people, immigrants, black people, you know what I mean? Like keeping some degree of measuredness around that, you know, when I'm feeling hopeful, feels like there's a real opportunity to have these conversations in a way we haven't had them before. When I'm feeling not so hopeful, it feels really scary. (laughs) Yeah. And and talking about the transition further left over time as being a pretty unique thing, it, it seems like the organization is also in a different political moment right now, focusing more on the United States you know, having a lot of internal conversations about whiteness and the politics of allyship, about the role of leadership from Jews of color, about settler colonialism in North America, as well as Palestine. I'm sort of interested in the the present moment of the organization and whether it feels like mm-hmm. it's making a, an additional shift left right now. That's a really good question. I mean, I think everything is up in the air right now, right? I think we're in a moment of both opportunity and uncertainty. And when I say we, I don't just mean JVP. I mean, the left in general, you know, and I think we're in a moment of recalibration in terms of thinking about what our obligations are and responsibilities are as one of the larger, if not largest, both Jewish formations and progressive formations in this country, while at the same time not at all leaving our fundamental mission around justice for Palestinians. I think it's something that's an ongoing conversation that we're 
figuring out, but that we know that we need to be ready to fight and that that's based in the work we've already done. So we already have like a network against Islamophobia that's been very active for many years. So it's not like Islamophobia is starting with Trump. You know, we know that there's a continuity there. And again, that there's opportunities to hopefully to bring in more progressive Jews who are horrified by Trump. But certainly we're grounded in sort of left principles in all the ways that we're thinking about that or we're doing our best to do it that way. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting, though, because I think for people listening on this side of the border, it's probably relevant to say that the total membership of JVP as it's listed online is actually about half of the entire Jewish population of Canada. We've we've been talking with some people who have been around in the movement for a while and were talking about their time in New Jewish Agenda during the Mm -hmm. 80s and early 90s. And I'm wondering if folks in Jewish Voice for Peace are starting to see it as sort of inheriting part of the outlook of New Jewish Agenda as being this Jewish home on the left and a leftist voice in the Jewish community. You know, we have started to see ourselves as like, we don't need these mainstream Jewish institutions because we can create our own. You know, there's probably a certain amount of hubris in that. But also we're big enough now that we can say it with some amount of seriousness, you know, that we really are offering an alternative for people. And one of the most recent manifestations of that is we have a Havara network. And actually, for high holiday services this year, we had four different synagogues that did live streams um, of different portions of their services. So for people who didn't have access to a synagogue where they would feel comfortable, they could see portions of the high holiday services through these live streams. And, you know, we had almost a thousand people who watched one or more online. I don't think we're the new, new Jewish agenda, because when it comes right down to it, even as we talk about creating these alternative Jewish communities and even as we're creating these partnerships, the question of Palestine is still the central question for us. And that's the organizing principle we're organizing around. It's obviously an interesting question to see what will happen in the Trump era and whether that changes in any kind of way. We, we don't know what will happen. But I still think that, like, in the end, the overarching political question that we are committed to and that our theory of change is about is about Israel-Palestine. And that's the one, also, I have to say, that feels like there's no one else who's doing this work with this analysis and this level of growing power. And so it feels like that's in a really important space for us to be continuing. So I think like, you know, it's always an interesting thing about, you know, if you spread yourself too thin, you can't do any work very, very well. But at the same time, sometimes doing one particular kind of work very, very well entails doing lots of different kinds of work. The last piece of your answer kind of dovetailed into my next question. And I'm going to tread carefully so as not to (laughs) name any names. But the recent political climate seems to uh, be fertile ground for certain liberal institutions to try to take Mm -hmm. up space (laughs) on the Jewish left. And I'm just wondering how you think JVP relates to kind of more liberal, mainstreamist Jewish institutions who are probably taking less of a structural approach towards some of the structural problems that we're seeing in the U.S. right now. I think one thing that's super interesting is all of a sudden everyone's jumping on the bandwagon of wanting to fight Islamophobia. But most of these liberal organizations that I think you're talking about don't actually have a history with that work. And so, you know, we have deep partnerships and existing relationships and an ongoing commitment to that work. And also, I think, a sharp political analysis around that work, which is not just like, don't be mean to people who are Muslim, but it's also about like, the state is fomenting Islamophobia and has been fomenting Islamophobia. And there are institutions in this country that are specifically fomenting Islamophobia in the service of supporting the Israeli state. And so, like, you know, we did this series of Hanukkah actions around Islamophobia in 25 cities 
at the end of the year. And it was really, really interesting because some of the JCRCs, Jewish Community Relations Councils, who would never touch us with a 10-foot pole, 100-foot pole, anything, but some of them were <laughs> eager to be part of those actions, or at least they were until they saw our principles, because they want a little bit of a piece of that action, but they don't really have that grounding politically. So there's that piece around Islamophobia work. But then I think the other piece that is really interesting is that, you know, if Clinton had won the presidency, she would have been terrible in Palestine. And we always knew that our work was long-term movement building work, and we were always going to be focused on movement building. But groups like J Street, for example, that were expecting to be in the White House and have the president's ear and had staked their political future on this sort of seat at the table strategy are in a much more difficult position than we are in terms of facing the next few years and how to do good, effective organizing work. All right, Becca, we can uh, hear your kids in the back. We'll definitely let you go. Uh, Thank you again (laughs) so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks, you guys. Thanks so much. This is Sarah calling from Berlin, Deutschland. First off, I want to say mazel tov on the excellent episode with Karen Brodkin and Benjamin Balthazar. I've harped on to both of you, as you know, in the past about how my experience of growing up in in what I'd called, for lack of a better name, a rural Jewish one to describe, in fact, an experience of growing up in a relatively large cities, but with proportionally negligible Jewish community, and how that had differed from growing up in a Montreal or a Toronto or even a Vancouver. And it was so great to hear that reflected in a conversation around institutional versus interpersonal anti-Semitism. So you asked me to contribute a little report on this Rent-A-Jew program that has popped up here in Germany. Uh, For those of you who haven't heard about it, it's basically a human library kind of model. I didn't find it all that controversial. It seemed to me not so dissimilar from all the years my dad came into my elementary schools to give a Hanukkah 101, just with a provocative and clickbaity kind of name. Uh, I've had probably as many conversations with Kiwis in Berlin who've told me that I'm the first Jew they've met as I have Germans and, for that matter, Canadians. So I suspect it's only the name and the location of the program that was really newsworthy. Also, anti to David for referring to himself as a good cop on the last episode, but counter anti for not doing so much hand-wringing about it, at least I'm imagining, that it didn't end up on the air at all. Plug in the crockpot. Throw in the barley. It's time for Shkoyach. 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 So welcome to Shkoyach. Welcome, David. Welcome. I, I was welcoming you. Okay, well, thank you for welcoming we're, me. We're both equally welcome at this and moment. And we're welcoming everyone who's listening. Yeah, that was actually, to be honest, who I was addressing. <laughs> Back by popular demand. Yeah, our most popular segment of the show. It's pretty much the only one that's left. Yeah, it's just this in the interviews now. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a different world. 2017. Uh, 5777. <laughs> um, earlier, earlier uh, Sam so forgot what year it was. That is true. Getting right down to business. Yeah. What is your shkoyach for the week? I'm giving my shkoyach to a person 
who is no longer alive and to the food that they once made. That's very specific. Yes. It is my grandmother, my grandmother Mildred. Oh, you, we, we've talked about your grandmother's food before. In A.K.A. Bubby. Yeah, for uh, long-time listeners, you'll remember Sam giving a shkoyach to an apple cobbler, I believe. Apple crisp. Apple crisp. So this is a, a follow-up shkoyach, I guess. Well, yeah, so I think the last time I gave a shkoyach to apple crisp, and in the last two or three weeks, um, my partner was visiting from out of town, and she kind of got me to try to make this apple crisp, because I'd never really tried to make it before. Oh, so you replicated it? I replicated it. I've made five now in the last two weeks. Oh, that's why you guys were cutting <laughs> the apples when I was over. Exactly. And I've kind of got closer and closer to the recipe that she made. Raisins play an integral role, I might add. Mm-hmm. So are you giving a shkoyach to the dish or, or to your efforts in recreating the dish? I think that the act of kind of making this meal or making this dessert, if you will, has caused me to reflect on uh, my grandma a little bit. And oh, nice. the kind of dry, sarcastic humor that I appreciate the most in this world comes from her remembering the things that I found strange as a youngster that I now really appreciate. What do you mean? I mean, she was always like pro books, pro museum, you know, like it was kind Uh, of like not the most fun thing in the world when I was 10 or 11, but that has helped kind of shape me. And I'm, I'm really grateful that I got to spend the time with her that I did. Yeah. That's a really nice reflection. So Bubby Millie, shkoyach to you. I'm not sure if she'd like this radio show. (laughs) Um, And she would definitely not hesitate to tell me that she thought it was terrible. But I don't know. I think in in her roundabout way, she would have been proud. It's a a very nice and very nice guy. Yeah, thank you. And um, on that note, with the aroma of a freshly baked apple crisp in mind, what is what is your skoyak, David? So my shkoyach is a far less positive, mm. far less um, sincere. I th- actually, I, I'd say you know, it's equally sincere, but a lot less positive and a lot mm. less personal, I think. All right. Well, this seems to be how our shkoyachs have broken down recently anyway. So. <laughs> really? I think so. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. I think I think that so much comes up in the span of a week in the Jewish media cycle mm-hmm. that boils my blood. Mm-hmm. And the show is my only outlet to talk about it. So I yeah. have I have these actually like four or five positive things. Yeah. But every week I have to be like, okay, what's the one thing I want to talk about most? Because that's all we have a chance to talk about now in the show is in the shkoyach segment. Yeah, I feel like the difference between you and me, though, is that I see those headlines and then continue my web surfing if you will and and you just hone in and read them i just i find that i just start to see like i feel like part of the show for me is it's a conduit for me to exercise the 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 frustration and rage that this stuff like when we go on break for a bit it just builds up i'll I'll just talk to people i know i'll be like hey can i tell you about this thing happening in the jewish media and 100 percent, no one wants to hear that nope that is true that's a very bad potluck talk anyway all that said my shkoyach for this week is an anti-shkoyach. Classic David. And it's going to the Orthodox Union. Oh, of course. Um, I know nothing <laughs> about them. Well, first of all, before I talk about the Orthodox Union, I should remind people that in the election that just happened, the vast majority of American Jewish voters voted Democrat, but 24% of Jewish voters actually voted for Donald Trump. And of that 24%, the understanding is that the majority were Orthodox voters. Huh. The Orthodox Union is a representative body... And they have a guy named Nathan Diamond, who's sort of like their lobbyist. He okay. goes to Washington. He has relationships. And he lobbies. Yeah. So my anti shkoyach is for this organization, and specifically Nathan Diamond, who at the end of last month made a public call on faith leaders to bring what he called a nonpartisan approach to the Trump inauguration. Mm. 
a nonpartisan approach to the Trump inauguration. There was a lot of speculation that there are prominent imams and even Catholics who were planning on boycotting the event. And I'm sure there are a bunch of Jewish rabbis who are not going to go as well, correct? A hundred percent. So he made the statement urging other faith leaders to show up and not inject undue partisanship into the proceedings. Well, like, so people like that complain, like, don't put your political opinions in the politics game. And you're just like, that is literally what this is all about. Yeah, well, essentially, he's telling imams to reverse their decision that they should be showing up to this anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, racist demagogue's inauguration because the Orthodox Union likes him. He said that they should focus on praying for the success of the president and the entire administration. Yeah, no, I I have have no time for this kind of stuff. So my anti-Shkoyach is going to him. And the twist is that the Orthodox Union are not even attending themselves because it's scheduled for Shabbos. Wow. (laughs) And I actually have a follow-up anti-Shkoyach. Of course. This guy named Marvin Hare, you might have heard of him. He used to be the head of Hillel at UBC in Vancouver, and he's the founder and the head of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Oh, lovely. It's a wonderful museum of tolerance that they tried to build on the Muslim Mamilla Cemetery in Jerusalem. Totally. So anti-Shkoyach to him, because he is going to be attending the inauguration, he's going to give a personal blessing to Donald Trump. Lovely. uh, On behalf of the entire Jewish community. That's great to hear that he will be blessed. Obviously, this is low-hanging fruit. Obviously, these are people who we don't have any connection with anyway. But I feel the reason I want to give my anti-shkoyach in this direction this week is uh, since we talked with Karen uh, for the last episode, uh, she mentioned that thing that she read about in the forward. I, I don't even think she remembered who wrote it. It was, uh, it was an op-ed with a Jewish historian that was talking about throughout history the presence of court Jews. Mm-hmm. And I think the concept of the court Jew has really been sitting with me. And mm-hmm. I feel like I have a lot of venom for the people who I see playing this role. Yeah. But I'm really, I don't know, I feel like I'm really struggling with what to do with that because I feel sort of uncomfortable pointing the finger and saying these people are court Jews because it feels so similar to the tactics that the right in the Jewish community use of questioning the authenticity of people's Jewishness. Yeah. And it can give people an out to a certain extent by not properly situating white European Jews role in white supremacy in North America, like focusing on these particular people who are in particular positions of power. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it has to. No, no, no. But like it could have that effect. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But I feel like these people like Trump's made now appointments of six separate people. They're all, of course, of a particular class of people. Yeah. They're all white people. Are they all dudes? Yeah, 100%. I think I'm just struggling a bit with how to talk about these people in the right way. I want to sort of talk about them as court Jews, but something like that feels just like something I would read on some weird right-wing blog. Yeah. The term court Jew feels unsettling to me as well. I would maybe think about it more in the context of the framework that Mark outlined last episode. This idea of like the moral choice of whiteness. Yeah. That these are actors who are very much enabling a very violent white supremacy in North America. Yeah, but I mean, there's also a class element to it as well, mm. you know, like, and that's, that's why I'm struggling a bit with it because they're all millionaires and billionaires. They're all coming from industries that are preying on working people. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, does this differentiate greatly from other billionaires who are enabling the violence of an American presidency, right? Like, why are we isolating these particular people beside from the fact they're Jewish, right? Yeah, I think I think for me, it's like, this administration, it's so stark, specifically in relationship to white Jews, mm-hmm. that you are sort of betraying a history of Jewishness that the Jewish right is very fond of telling, regardless of its accuracy. Huh. 
But doesn't that then essentialize Jewish identity and Jewish yeah, history? Yeah, exactly. Where it's like, even the stories that you tell, you're betraying. Yeah. And that's why there's so much venom in it. Because like, I have to deal with this narrative all the time and defend myself from it. Mm. And these people who are telling these stories mm. are betraying their own stories. Yeah. I think there's analysis to be made about what role these kinds of people play. Yeah, definitely. All right. So that's a lot of anti-schoil for you. It is. Uh, sorry to tell all those <laughs> listening. I promise that next week I will give a positive shkoyach. Great. And maybe I'll try and bring a negative one. All right. So that's our episode for today. Good old number 26, which um, I've been doing a little Googling since uh, the episode started, David. Oh, that was you find. Two quite interesting things. I should say I'm very suspicious here. <laughs> so the first is that God gave the Torah to the Jews in the 26th generation of creation. All right, all right, all right. The other one is that 26 is the sum of the Hebrew characters Yud Hey Vav Hey. The name of God in Judaism. Yep. All right, you got me there. <laughs> Incidentally, for all hockey fans, it is also the number of Peter Stasny who played for the Quebec Nordiques and was a very important hockey player. Oh, there you player. go. That's a sports player, like we said before. I brought it all together, David. Okay. Um, this is also the part of the show where we bug all of our listeners to do things that they probably don't want to do. Positive iTunes review. Actually, to break with the character of this segment of the show, I'd like to thank everybody who reached out for copies of the poster who've been putting them up in shuls and in Hillel locations across the United States. We did not expect that to happen. Thank you very much. If you, too, would like a copy of this poster, uh, you don't even have to email us anymore. In the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to download the file. And I guess we've said this a few times before, but thank you to everyone who listens to the show. Thanks to everyone who shares the show on Facebook and on Twitter and sends us emails and DMs. Like, it really means a lot that folks are listening and engaging with what we're putting out there. Yeah, and if you're really excited about the show and you want to support it in some way, the, the best way you can support the show is just telling people about it, sharing it online. That's the only way we can really reach new listeners, so it, it would help us out a lot. Yeah, there's a little function on the Facebook page where you can invite friends. A few of our friends have done that recently. Shout out to the staff rabbi of Treif, Ariana Katz. And it's just an easy way for people that you're friends with or that you know or that you want to bother to listen to the show. Your Zionist uncle, your uh, friend from high school that you got into an argument with. A very passive-aggressive way of sending them a different set of politics. <laughs> Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganagahaga territory. Wait, how come you're talking like that? I don't know. Um... Thanks to Cadence O'Neill, who made our new website, tradepodcast.com. Thanks to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, and to Kira Page, our social media consultant. Thanks to C. Lavery, who made our new poster, which you can download in the show notes to this episode. Thanks also to Sax Syndrome and So-Called for all the music that you heard in this episode. Who are you forgetting, David? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Thank you to Ariana Katz, of course, Trave's new staff rabbi. Please follow us on all the social media, so weird. Twitter and Facebook at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F. And uh, send us all comments, suggestions, hate mail, anything you'd like to send our way to TreyfPodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. All right, enough of that. <laughs> Thank you.
be like a borscht joke. That's the joke. Not a borscht cholent. It's like keep this, keep the stove running. Happy um, Solar New Year, David. It's the wait, wait, Solar New Year. I mean, twenty seventeen. I feel like oh, on the Gregorian calendar. Yeah, it's a solar calendar. It is solar. Really? Uh huh. Oh, okay. Well, the day starts in the morning. Sorry, the day starts <laughs> at night. What? 